Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. We had a lot of great news on the vaccine front this week. Moderna said that their vaccine candidate appeared to be 94.5% effective against COVID-19. This vaccine is similar to the Pfizer candidate, which uses messenger RNA to target the spike protein of the virus. The other good news is that the Moderna vaccine can be stored at standard refrigerator temperatures for a month before being used, which will make it a lot easier to ship and store. We're also hearing from the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar that Pfizer is expected to file their application to the FDA for emergency use authorization of its vaccine. For all of the vaccine news, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. So they're both based on the same technology, actually. So they're they're very similar vaccines. Moderna can be given at a, doesn't have to be kept quite as frozen, so it may be a little more practical to give, especially in rural places. But essentially, they're, they're very similar vaccines, and they're both showing incredible effectiveness. Uh, now, these two vaccines, as you mentioned, they're both using mRNA, which is something that we've never approved before in a vaccine. This is pretty new technology, and this would be the first thing, if approved, first pair of vaccines that are using this type of technology. How does that work exactly? Right. So it basically uses the body's own system. We make RNAs, mRNAs all the time. This trains our body to make a protein that is found on the surface of the virus that causes covid and once our body is used to see, sees this virus, it's trained to, to, to see this protein, it attacks it, and we mount an immune response. And, and the good thing, you know, what happens now is we get a couple of rounds of good news, and then right away we start getting very optimistic about the future. So we have two <laughs> vaccines that are coming up, shaping up really good, and this gives everybody a lot of hope for other ones, because we're going to need multiple vaccine candidates to be able to get this across the country. Absolutely. And across the world. Yes, there's no question that we need as many as we can get. And I've spoken to several people today who say that the good news from Pfizer and Moderna bodes well for the other vaccines. They're all targeting the same protein on the surface of the of the virus. And so the fact that one and two are working suggests that others will as well. Let's talk a little bit more about the effectiveness. So Pfizer had about 44,000 people enrolled in their clinical trial. Moderna They had about 30,000 people, and this is also a two-shot protocol. What are we learning about how many people came down with the virus after going through the shots? Right. So the way they set these trials up is they vaccinate a bunch of people and then wait until they get sick. Unfortunately, because we have so much virus circulating in the U.S. right now, it hasn't taken that long to get a lot of people sick. In both cases, I think Pfizer had 94 people who fell ill and Moderna had 95. Out of Moderna's 95 Only five of them had been in the vaccine arm of the trial, while the rest had gotten a placebo. So if 90 out of 95 get a placebo, get get it and and got the placebo and only five in the vaccine arm get it, you can statistically conclude, uh, at least at this point, that it's 90, almost 95 percent effective. They will look again. This was an interim analysis. The final analysis comes at about 160 infections for both. And at that point, Assuming these numbers hold, they can be sure that it's 90, more than 90% sure that, that those numbers are real. 
this vaccine more so than Pfizer was involved with Operation Warp Speed. I mean, this was being done in conjunction with the U.S. government. Tell us a little bit about that relationship. Right. The government has been working for years with Moderna to develop this mRNA platform, this means of, of making vaccines quickly for exactly this purpose, because we don't know, God forbid, what's coming next out of the woods somewhere. You know, we, we tend to, these viruses tend to come from animals and we can't predict what's coming next. So the idea was to create a vaccine that could be deployed quickly in a circumstance like this. And they still have a few more hoops to go through. They are going to file for the emergency use authorization, obviously. But, you know, there's hurdles with regards to production and a couple of other things as well. Right. So um, they're likely to, Pfizer in particular, is likely to go through those very quickly. They have to pass manufacturing. They have to prove that they can manufacture this vaccine safely and at scale. Pfizer has said they will have that done by this week. They're also waiting for safety data which is not expected to be a problem, but they had to wait until two months, until half the people in the trial at least had, got, had gone two months after their second infection. If you're going to have a bad reaction to a vaccine, that's very likely to come within the first six weeks of getting the vaccine. So the federal government asked them to wait eight weeks to make sure that there weren't problems, mysterious problems cropping up. At this point, they haven't seen anything. But these vaccines do have some consequences. You're going to probably feel lousy for a day or two after getting them, muscle pains, you know, a little fever, tired, like you have the flu for a day or two. So they are not without some side effects, but it's a lot better than ending up in a hospital. And finally, tell us a little bit about the storage of this, because you mentioned that, uh, you know, when we're talking about the Pfizer, it has to be sold at a really, really cold temperatures. This can be stored at more standard refrigerator temperatures for up to a month, so it could last longer. So shipping might be a little easier with this. And then how many doses are we looking at? to be available right away. Right. So both of these, as you said, require two shots in my arm to be protected. The Pfizer vaccine is given three weeks apart. The Moderna vaccine is given four weeks apart. And yes, the Pfizer vaccine needs to be so cold. I think a, a colleague discovered that rubber shatters at the temperature of dry ice, which is the temperature this has to be kept at. In terms of distribution, Pfizer says that they can have 50 million doses by the end of this calendar year. Moderna estimates about 20 million. Both expect hundreds of millions of doses available next year. We'll see what happens. Well, good news. We're on our way looking forward to that authorization, and then we can start getting it out to the country. Just a lot of good news on that front. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This week, we also got more guidance from the CDC. With the coronavirus surging out of control, the CDC asked Americans not to travel for Thanksgiving and not to spend the holiday with people outside of their household. Gatherings should be outdoors if possible. People should be keeping six feet apart and wearing their masks, and only one person should be serving that food. But if you're thinking about getting tested before Thanksgiving, you should also be careful on planning that everyone has gotten tested approach to getting together. While this approach can be used as a form of risk reduction, It's not a guarantee of safety from the virus. Quarantining can also help, but the day is quickly approaching. For more on why you should be cautious about this everyone getting tested approach, we'll speak to Christy Ashwanden, reporter at Wired. So my story is really about this notion that a lot of people apparently have that as long as you get tested and you test negative, it's just fine to have a regular holiday gathering. So you sort of ask everyone to get a test, and as long as that test comes back negative, you're good to go. You can just proceed as though we're not in a pandemic. 
the problem with this is that these tests have limitations. And I just want to be really clear that testing is very important. And I'm not saying that it's not. I'm not saying that the tests are inherently faulty or anything like that. But they do have some shortcomings. And one of the problems is that particularly when you have first become infected with the virus, it is very possible to take a test and be negative um, and very soon after become infectious. In fact, we saw, if you want to see an example of this, there was a case in Wisconsin of a boys camp that was using this approach. So they were asking people to be sort of careful when they were coming to the camp and not try to interact with other people. But they had to have, in order to attend this camp, a negative test within a few days of arriving at the camp. And they ended up with 116 cases of covid Um, That was traced back to one of the kids that arrived who had had a negative test, but it turns out, you know, became sick a couple of days after that. And so I think the danger with the tests is that you get this false sense of security and the sense that the negative test means that, you know, there's absolutely no way that you can have the virus. And we know that's not the case. The really important thing here is that we need to keep doing these behaviors that we've been told to do, you know, social distancing, masking, avoiding large groups. There's just no getting around. And believe me, if there was a way (laughs) to do that, I would be recommending it because we all want to, you know, be able to have parties with our friends and family gatherings and all of that. But I think the real takeaway is that you can't just stop doing those behaviors. Unfortunately, we're just not at that point. And particularly now, I mean, if you look at the numbers, this is true nationally. They're just, I mean, this is sort of the worst it's been this whole pandemic. And so this is absolutely the wrong time to let down your guard. Right. I think you mentioned it really well in the article too. This everyone gets tested strategy could be more of a form of risk reduction rather than this guarantee of safety. I mean, if people want to quarantine, uh, you know, the week before and and limit all that exposure and get your tests, that's great. You might be on your way to uh, averting something or, or a big outbreak, but that unknown possibility is kind of always there. It's not a guarantee. You did talk to a few experts. I mean, <laughs> we're getting very close to Thanksgiving already. What would they recommend? I mean, they're saying quarantine for two weeks just just so you can be safe. That's uh, really hard to do right now. Don't go shopping. Those are some of the yeah. other things they were saying. That's so hard to do when you need to go out and get all those supplies and things. Yeah, that's right. And we're at a point now that it's, it's really too late to start quarantining for Thanksgiving if you have not already done so. And let's just be really clear here. Doing a 14-day quarantine, which is, you know, the best practices that are recommended if you are going to be seeing people who are vulnerable, you want to do that. You want to quarantine yourself so not have contact with other people. And that's a really hard thing to do. And I think it's something that only a privileged few in our society are able to do. Most people, you know, unless they can work from home, unless they have access to things like grocery deliveries and things like this, you know, people have to go get their paycheck. And for a lot of people, that means going to work. And inherently, they're going to be interacting with other people. You can only be so careful. And so we have to realize that this is hard stuff to do. But the very safest way is really through the quarantine is is basically avoiding any situation where you might come into contact with the virus. And, you know, I think the other thing that we're seeing now, though, is that people really, you know, we tend to really let down our guard with friends and loved ones, family members, you know, we think that they're okay and we assume we can't get it from them. But it's not necessarily that you're going to get it from some random person you interact with on the street or in a grocery store. You know, so much of the transmission we know now is household transmission. It's among family members. It's among small family gatherings. And so you really have to be careful about this. And so if you want to reduce your risk as much as possible, you want to quarantine for as long as you can. Now, 14 days is ideal, but even doing a short 
shorter quarantine can be helpful. And um, there's another strategy, uh, which is to do something like an eight-day quarantine, where then you are tested right at the end. And there, you know, if you know that you have not been in contact with anyone, then the negative test might be, you know, a little bit more reliable. But again, you know, you have to get the test somewhere. And, you know, going to a COVID testing site is probably a pretty good place to come into contact with the virus. You know, there's no guarantee that you don't get it, you know, waiting in line for the test, say. Yeah, I should also say that the test really only tells you at that particular moment in time whether you are infectious. And it's possible that you are infected, but not yet infectious enough to be positive on the test. And there is this sort of timeline during which the test won't catch it yet. And so it just should never be taken as this sure thing. We know for a fact that people will be gathering with their family members just as normal throughout this holiday season. So we're going to have to keep a lookout. And as you mentioned, still practice all the other stuff, the mask wearing, the social distancing, washing your hands, and only use these tests as a risk reduction method. So we'll see how it all pans out. Christy Ashwanden, reporter at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're seeing a lot of surging cases of COVID around the U.S. and Europe. And a result, we're starting to see a new wave of lockdowns. California just ordered modified lockdowns. Other states have ordered modified lockdowns. And while we know that a lot of people are getting infected at home, officials are struggling to identify where people are actually getting infected. Contact tracing efforts are pretty much a failure right now, and it's hard to trace where these infections are originating from. For more on how it's difficult to pinpoint how everyone is getting sick, we'll speak to Matthew Dalton, Paris correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Officials across the Western world and Europe and the United States are largely in the dark about where people are catching the virus. We sort of know as a general matter that you catch the virus in poorly ventilated closed spaces where a lot of people are gathered. Not wearing a mask is something that that leaves you much more vulnerable to infection, scientists believe. But beyond that, it's it's unclear more specifically where, what kinds of environments are causing transmission to happen, causing this big surge in cases. So is it restaurants? Is it bars? People believe that's likely. Those are settings where you, you're taking your mask off to eat and drink. However, contact tracing systems across the Western world that are supposed to be tracing infections, um, understanding who is infecting whom, have been really... Um, have been not working well at all, I would say. Some of those numbers are are pretty crazy. In Germany, authorities say they don't know where 75% of people who currently test positive for the coronavirus got it. In Austria, it's at 77%. In Spain, they can only identify 7% of the uh, infections just from October. So the numbers are really bad. And then on the contact tracing side, some of these Asian countries that have been using contact tracing successfully They're interviewing about 10 or more contacts for each case. And in the United States and a bunch of European countries, we're getting fewer than four contacts. Uh, So that just kind of those numbers just kind of show you that this contact tracing effort is just really not working right now. Yeah, I mean, this is a hard disease to do contact tracing for for several reasons. First, people can transmit the disease when they don't have symptoms up to, you know, authorities believe two days before people become symptomatic. Um, so that that makes it a challenge. Um, also, it takes a while 
for symptoms to develop after you have been infected. So if a contact tracer is asking you to think back where you might have been infected, you could be thinking about 10 days and all the places you went in 10 days. And so that kind of method is also not very effective. And so, but nevertheless, um, Asian countries like Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, some extent Japan have been successful in doing it. And it's just, it requires a lot of rigor. It requires a lot of manpower. It requires um, a, a lot of testing capacity um, and, and testing results to be available very quickly. And so for, for those reasons, systems in the West aren't picking up a lot of people who are potentially um, being infected by, by other, by positive cases when they're doing these contact tracing interviews. One of the reasons for that is I think we're not, really understanding how people are potentially contracting the virus in, in situations where you don't know your contacts. So actually in a restaurant, right. if you're not the person at your table, but the, who you know, but the person at the table, maybe five or six feet from you. And if that restaurant is poorly ventilated, if you're in there for a while, you're, you've got your mask down, you're eating. Those are situations where it seems like transmission should be happening. However, a lot of um, contact tracing systems won't consider you a close contact to somebody you know who's sitting at a table separated from you um, if the table is far enough away. Um, however, you know it's not it's not like um, there's like a wall at six feet and the virus just like drops dead <laughs> exactly. um, uh, after six feet. There's a lot of uncertainty about how far the the virus can spread um, through the air. And that's yeah. why restaurants are such a big uh, focus of all of this. And what's mm -hmm. happening now, you know, we're leading to new rounds of lockdowns. In France, Germany, and the UK, they're uh, doing some modified lockdowns in on the U.S. side. In New Mexico, they're doing a two-week stay-at-home order. In Oregon, they're doing partial lockdowns of businesses and all. And that's because it's just getting out of control. But restaurants seem to be a key point in that. Uh, you know, I remember having to give my phone number a couple of times at a restaurant if I went to it. Um, but, uh, largely that hasn't happened. And I know some, you know, some of the restaurants are trying to get these lists going just in case there's an outbreak, but maybe the word never gets back to them or something. You know, we keep going back to these contact tracing efforts and yeah. just not being able to connect all the dots there. And then you go home yeah. and you infect family members. And then that's where uh, that's ends up being a big driver. So it's just really difficult to nail this whole thing down. You know, I think what you said, the phrase you used was connecting all the dots is a good, you know, these cysts, like you have all this information out there, you have your suspicions. But part of the thing is, is that these are systems that did not exist really before in such large scale before the pandemic began. Um, Asian countries had a bit of a head start, uh, a big head start on the West because they had been previously dealing with outbreaks, um, SARS the first SARS virus and then the, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus. Um, and both of those things um, were, were big learning moments for, for those countries because they, they had a big impact economically. And so the, the countries kind of got up to, they were better prepared uh, because of that to do contact tracing. And, and they did it, they did it much more successfully. You know, this isn't going to be the last virus. Hopefully it won't be a pandemic, but there, there are going to be more in the future. And, you know, you'd like to think that the West would be better prepared, not to mention, you know, the fact that we're still in the middle of this one. Matthew Dalton, Paris correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.